Hey y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Eves. Welcome to This Day in History class, a show that reveals a little bit more about history day by day. The day was April 17, 1917. After seeing many patients with varying symptoms, including lethargy and odd eye movements, Romanian-Austrian psychiatrist Constantin von Economo announced the probable spread of a viral disease at a meeting of the Vienna Society for Psychiatry and Neurology. The disease, which was spreading all over the world, became known as encephalitis lethargica, or epidemic encephalitis. The so-called sleeping sickness put many people into a deep sleep and often resulted in death or post-encephalitic Parkinsonism, a progressive neurodegenerative syndrome that develops after encephalitis. While the epidemic was in full swing in the late 1910s and 1920s, the number and types of symptoms increased rapidly. There were similar illnesses that popped up around the world before the encephalitis lethargica epidemic started in the early 1900s. For instance, African sleeping sickness, which garnered attention in the late 1800s, has symptoms like sleepiness and apathy. And there was a disease known as La Nona, which was a post-flu complication characterized by somnolence that was prominent in Northern Italy and Central Europe in 1889 and 1890. Somnolence just means a person feels sleepy or drowsy or sleeps for a really long time. But the earliest reports of people affected by the encephalitis lethargica epidemic are from 1916, when much of the world was occupied with the First World War. In fact, the troops' march across Europe during the war likely helped spread the disease quickly. In France, doctors saw soldiers who had fallen into a deep sleep. And while Dr. Constantine von Economo was working at a psychiatric neurological clinic in Vienna, he began seeing patients with strange variations of neurological symptoms. They had been diagnosed with conditions like meningitis, multiple sclerosis, and delirium, but those diagnoses didn't quite seem to fit the bill. They had malaise, fevers, trouble with their eye muscles, and a lot of them had lethargy. So Von Economo figured all these cases stemmed from a sleeping sickness. Once many of the affected patients began dying, he realized how urgent the need to study the condition was. Not long after the April 17th meeting, he described the disease in an article titled Encephalitis Lethargica. He said patients would get headaches and malaise, then somnolence. Those initial symptoms could become chronic and lead to a coma, or a recovery would eventually happen, or the patient could die. French physician René Cruchet also saw patients with similar neurological symptoms, and he distinguished their condition from previous cases of encephalomyelitis, or inflammation of the brain and spinal cord. Crochet published an article on the disease around the same time as von Economo published his. Since the disease was causing mental and behavior changes, many people did not believe it could be caused by a virus. At the time, people believed things like trauma caused mental illness. And the 1918 flu pandemic, which ended up killing at least 50 million people, was a medical crisis that demanded a lot of attention. 
So many people weren't really convinced by Von Economo's proposal at first. But the encephalitis lethargica epidemic was getting worse. Some patients were sleeping for months, and others were dying of exhaustion. The disease was spreading to children who were losing impulse control and becoming violent. The Neurological Institute began funding a lot of the research of the disease. Encephalitis lethargica cases reached epidemic proportions in Vienna in 1917, then in France and England in 1918. By 1919, it has spread throughout most of Europe, Canada, the U.S., Central America, and India. The epidemic peaked in 1920 and 1924 and continued into the 1930s. People who developed Parkinsonism required long-term care. Researchers attempted to discover the cause of the disease and find a vaccine, but no treatment or cure came of that work. When the drug levodopa began to be administered to patients with Parkinson's in the 1960s, it was also given to some patients with encephalitis lethargica, but treatment wasn't successful. In the 1927 publication Epidemic Encephalitis, Encephalomyelitis, L.M. Kraft said the following, Its dramatic advent on a war-torn world, its rapid diffusion to all continents and the islands of the seas, its striking and characteristic pathological picture, its astonishing masquerade in the guise of a myriad of other diseases, its remarkable shifts of group types in succeeding years of its recurrence, and its almost unforetellable course in any individual case has no parallel in the entire field of medicine. And it is doubtful if any plague has ever been visited upon humanity that has claimed so many victims, has so completely covered the earth, and left so many maimed and crippled wrecks in its wake. After 1940, cases of encephalitis lethargica were only sporadic. During the epidemic, the disease may have killed half a million people and affected more than a million, though the true number of people afflicted is unknown and overdiagnosis was likely. Today, exactly what causes encephalitis lethargica and how it spread is still a mystery. It's likely not caused by the flu, which many people have fought over the years, and it's been linked to streptococcal infections. Though only symptoms of the disease can be treated with medicine, there has been some success with steroids, anti-Parkinson drugs, and electroconvulsive therapy. But because scientists don't know what causes the disease, it's hard to say whether it will make a comeback or how to prevent another epidemic. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to learn more about the disease and its spread in the early 1900s, listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Encephalitis Lethargica. Get more notes from history on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back tomorrow for more delicious morsels of history. Greetings, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast that never gets tired of history. The day was April 17, 1951. 
the Peak District became the first national park in the UK. Before the 19th century, wild and remote areas in the UK countryside were viewed as untamed and unsafe. But by the early 19th century, people had begun viewing these remote areas more favorably. English poets like Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth romanticized the countryside in their work. Yellowstone, the first national park in the United States, was established in 1872. Yellowstone is sometimes considered the world's first national park, though this is disputed because there were nationally protected areas in some countries already. Regardless, more national parks began popping up around the world in the late 1800s, such as the Royal National Park in Australia and Banff National Park in Canada. By the late 19th century in the UK, people had begun fighting for the right to roam. A lot of the land in the UK was privately owned, and over the years, people put forth more demands for access to restricted land. The freedom to roam is a principle that states that people have the right to access land for recreation and exercise. In 1884, James Bryce, a member of parliament, introduced the first parliamentary bill for public access to the countryside. The bill failed, but it was reintroduced every year for the next few decades, only to fail each time. Meanwhile, public appreciation for natural areas and outdoor recreation was growing. As industrialization spread across England and cities expanded, people began walking around the countryside. At the end of the 1800s, people began forming rambling clubs. And in 1905, the Federation of Rambling Clubs formed in London. As more people began to seek access to private land, conflict between landowners and public interest groups escalated. In 1931, a government inquiry recommended the creation of an authority to choose areas for designation as national parks, but this proposal went nowhere. The next year, in an event known as the Kinder Scout Mass Trespass, hundreds of people gathered to protest the fact that people were being denied access to areas of open country. In 1936, a voluntary standing committee on national parks was formed to advocate for national parks and lobby the government. The committee was made up of leisure activity enthusiasts and nature conservationists. World War II broke out in 1939, but the campaign for the creation of national parks continued. And as the war neared its end in 1945, John Dower, who was secretary of the Standing Committee on National Parks, produced a white paper on national parks as part of the Labor Party's planned post-war reconstruction. This report led to Sir Arthur Hophouse's report in 1947, which prepared legislation for the creation of national parks in the UK. The report also proposed a list of 12 areas to be designated as national parks. Two years later, the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act was passed. On April 17, 1951, the Peak District became the first area to be designated a national park in the UK. The Peak District is an upland area in England at the southern end of the Pennines. Its highest point is the Moorland Plateau of Kinderscout. Land throughout the park is publicly and privately owned. By the end of the 1950s, several more national parks were established. Unlike national parks in other countries, the state does not own or control the land in UK national parks. The national parks continue to be part of conversations related to the freedom to roam, conservation, and development. The Peak District National Park has around 13 million visitors every year. 
I'm Eve's Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to send us a note on social media, please feel free to do so on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're at T-D-I-H-C podcast. You can also send us a message via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.